Chasing Lights Chapter 7 What about the other road out of town? A friend of my mother's offered the use of their summer cottage when they weren't there. North of Anchorage is the Matanuska Valley, the only real farmland in the state. Matanuska Maid provided most of the dairy we ate and drank, and it was also known as the source of a brand of marijuana called Matanuska Thunderfuck. I, I don't know how potent it was, but after working in the branding business for a few years, I learned to respect the inherent power of that name for its intended demographic anyway. The brand promise and benefit are threaded so elegantly into the name that it is difficult to miss its meaning. Every August, there was a state fair in Palmer, a small town at one end of the valley. It was like most small farm towns anywhere. The only real difference was the Matanuska Glacial Valley and Kinnick Glacier a few miles away. I've always thought of it as one of the calmer areas in the state. If Jane Austen had set one of her stories in Alaska, she probably would have chosen the valley, even though there aren't any great houses belonging to handsome gentlemen with ample incomes. The state fair looked like any other farmer gathering. Stands sheltered various livestock, award-winning vegetables, pies, and jams, and jellies. The cabbages, though, were notable. Now, thanks to the intensity of the short growing season with 24-hour sunlight, cabbages could get above 100 pounds and spread more than six feet across. Handcrafted goods were on display as well, and I remember my mom helping with a stand that had something to do with her weaving. I was most interested in the carnival rides that took up the midway. There was always a Ferris wheel, a merry-go-round, and usually some sort of large egg-beater-like contraption that would spin people around in small circles, surrounded by medium circles, while riding around in a big circle. I don't know why I liked that one, but I did. And near the fairgrounds, and right next to the train tracks, was a little valley completely overrun by wild raspberry bushes. I've never seen so many raspberry bushes. We were enlisted to help my mom pick berries, and we were handed large pots to fill. My mother always filled hers first, not because she hurried, but because she stayed focused on the job. Just like when she knits, there's no fuss, no demonstration of her hard work. She just does it one step at a time. I'm afraid I was a terrible berry picker. To start with, I would eat them. Then I would have to take a break and look up at the sky, and then I would have to complain about how tired I was, and before I knew it, my pot was maybe a quarter full. Unfortunately, enough berries were picked that my mother would have enough to make jam. The jam was wonderful, but even better was the bubbled froth she would skim off the top as it was boiling. She would put it on a plate for all of us to taste once it had cooled. The strongest essence of berry. I swear we could taste sunlight. Driving the Glen Highway out of Anchorage, 
was a completely different task than driving Turnigan Arm. Gentle curves and mild inclines prevailed, while the first 15 miles to Eagle River, another small town, were on a four-lane highway. Eagle River was officially considered a suburb of Anchorage with its population of 2,400 people. Now, most people in Eagle River didn't consider themselves part of Anchorage, and in Anchorage, we didn't really want to claim them either. Outside of Eagle River, the road would narrow to two lanes, and in another 25 miles or so, there was a turn off the Glen Highway towards Wasilla, Talkeetna, Denali, and ultimately Fairbanks. We didn't go on to Fairbanks. We didn't even go to Wasilla. Now, Wasilla at that time was a very small village that later became famous when the former mayor became governor of Alaska, then a controversial vice president candidate with uh, John McCain in 2008. Known for her aggressive and divisive rhetoric, more in the style of present-day politicians, the media was eager to understand where Sarah Palin came from. And Wasilla was described as a suburb of Anchorage at that point, a misleading description of a place that one must travel 45 miles through open countryside or farmland to get there. But when Miss Palin entered the national political scene, all my Alaskan diaspora friends called each other to answer the same questions the media was asking. Who is Sarah Palin? The only thing we could come up with was this. Sarah Palin was from Wasilla. To us, that described perfectly what she ended up doing during the campaign. We were the same generation as Ms. Palin growing up, and whenever the Wasilla track team came to compete in Anchorage, we were frankly unsettled. They were a tough bunch. So we turned off onto a gravel road through the woods until we got to the cabin and carrying our groceries, sleeping bags, and clothing down a little footpath, we suddenly came upon an A-frame cottage with one side of a steep roof interrupted by a wall of windows facing the wraparound porch. It was almost perched at the top of a short bluff that went down to the lake. It was a small lake, but pretty, with a dozen or so cottages placed far apart from each other. Called Horseshoe Lake, it was aptly named as the water swept around an isthmus where we were located into a full U shape. We jumped quickly into our swimsuits and made our way to the water below. A wooden staircase allowed us to easily get down the bluff to the dock. My brother ran to the end of the dock and jumped in, which in retrospect was the best way to do it. I didn't. Instead, I slowly walked from the shallows, trying to adjust to the ice water, yelping as the water rose above my waist, then finally going under. It really was cold. So much so that after an hour in the water, our lips would turn blue. Now, after my lengthy entry process, I was able to swim and meet my brother on a raft that was anchored about 50 feet away. We pulled ourselves up onto the raft after a bit of difficulty. It was slippery, but there was a lot of underwater plants growing near it, which drove us to try even harder. Something about feeling the plants around our feet was deeply disturbing. And once on the raft, I discovered why my method of entering the water was ill-advised. A large population of leeches lived in the shallows. My slowness allowed a few to attach themselves to me. 
Our first experience with leeches, we rushed back to the dock and then the house to find out what could be done. And quite a bit of salt later, they were unattached. You know, from that point forward, getting them off just became a normal thing. There's a scene in the film, The African Queen, when Humphrey Bogart is covered in leeches after towing a boat through a swamp. And our new familiarity with the black and brown worms did not diminish our horror when we watched the movie. We spent most of our time in the water anyway, and and most of our time at the cottage in a bathing suit. There was no running water in the cottage or electricity. There was an outhouse out back in the woods, and and at the kitchen sink there was an old-fashioned pump with a handle next to the sink. To, to get the water started, we would have to pour a pitcher of water from the lake into the spout, then crank the handle a dozen times before fresh water from the well would come out. Once primed, it worked well. It was as easy to use as a faucet. In late summer, at night after dinner, we lit the kerosene lanterns and everyone played board games, cards, or read mystery novels. The windows were open with the screens in place so the mosquitoes were kept at bay. And like all screen doors, this one made a lovely bang whenever anyone left to go to the bathroom, preceded by the squeak of the hinge springs. It's difficult not to love that sound wherever one is. All the kids slept in a loft above the main room where one easily drifted off to sleep while the grown-ups quietly talked. It only took around 45 minutes to get there. And many people's daily commutes in places like Los Angeles, New York, or Chicago are longer than that. It was a relaxing and easy trip, except for one thing. About 15 minutes from the cabin, there was an ice cream stand called Archie's. They would take a soft serve ice cream cone and dip the ice cream into chocolate, butterscotch, or some fruit-flavored sauce that would harden immediately into a candy shell. I'm not certain that they tasted very good, but it was a novelty, and it was on the way home. And Archie's cone was the best possible treat for a kid. But there was a rule, perhaps because they had long tired of being begged by four kids. Stopping at Archie's had to be my parents' idea, not ours. If anyone dared to ask, there was an instant no. Therefore, we would nervously sit in the car, getting more and more silent the closer we came to the stand. I remember wishing a lot, as well as trying to execute mind control. And someone would always be sure to point out the view, or a bird, or even a moose on the right side of the car as we approached, just to make sure no one forgot. And most of the time, we stopped. But if we didn't, we all wondered, was it my fault? Was I not good enough? Was the desire too obvious on my face? One time, we had another kid in the car, the youngest son of my mom's friend. He had been going to the cabin since he was born, and he knew all about Archie's, but he didn't know about the rule, and he asked my mother to take us there. We all died inside at that moment, but mom took pity on us and pulled into Archie's anyway. Now, around that time, we tried to explore on the Glen Highway beyond Palmer, which meant going over the Chugach Range. The 
calm and peaceful drive through Matanuska Valley became an impossibly high mountain pass, 3,000 feet at its highest. The route goes through switchbacks and by precarious drops for 50 miles or so before evening out on a high plain. I remember lying down in the back of the car on our way home as the curves pushed us back and forth, and I was so grateful to be lying down and so worried that as a 12-year-old, I should probably sit upright in a seat. Our glacier pilot friend knew about something that might work for us. One winter, he flew my father in to see it. The price was right, and soon thereafter, we bought it. We had to wait to see it in person, though, until after breakup. There were photos to study and, and then to imagine what it might all be like. It, it wasn't a cabin. Instead, it was a compound of a dozen small buildings. It had once been a hunting lodge, though without access by road, I doubt it ever did very well. It had been closed for some time when we bought it. Located on a lake called Tyone, the only neighbor for miles was an abandoned Athabascan fishing village across the bay. The closest living neighbor was three miles away. It was truly the middle of nowhere. Now, getting there was challenging. After a three to four hour drive on the Glen Highway, there was another 20 to 30 miles to travel on a rough gravel road. And at the end of that road was a boat landing and a small lodge. Once in a boat, there was another 20 miles of travel across Lake Louise and Lake Susitna before entering the third lake, Tyone. That was the easy way to get there. When it wasn't summer, one had to either fly by ski plane or over the frozen lake by snow machine. Flying was always an option with skis, floats, or a willingness to land on the rude landing strip behind the place. The former owner, to attract more business, plowed a strip of forest that was near impossible to land on. Our glacier pilot did, of course, but he looked a bit rattled when he got out of his plane. But of course, we didn't have a plane. My father wasn't interested in becoming a pilot, and planes are more expensive than boats, so we got a boat. An open 17-foot craft with a 70-horsepower outboard motor. It was quick, it had a shallow keel, and it was designed to handle ocean swells and bad weather. It was ideal for the lakes, especially those first two. They were known for six-foot waves during storms. We learned quickly that those storms were not infrequent. I didn't realize at the time that we were signing up for a four-hour commute. As we waited out breakup, my mother decided that our new place in the country would be perfect for a half-dozen domestic geese. And by the middle of June, the little chicks, acquired a month before, were now quite large and consuming every blade of grass in the backyard. Now in the abstract, or flying through the air, geese are quite lovely. Living with them is different. First off, Geese are loud, very loud. They talk to each other constantly. And if anyone or anything gets too close to them, they let loose with a noise much louder than any dog could possibly bark. They were the guard dog that Ralph never became. Second, they eat and digest very quickly 
from one end to the other, it takes about 10 minutes. Since they eat most of the time, they also poop most of the time, everywhere they go. The good news is six geese in a backyard means never having to mow or fertilize the lawn. The bad news is no one wants to spend any time walking, playing, or lounging in a yard mowed by ravenous geese. Finally, it was time for all of us to go to Lake Tyone. All the geese were gathered in a large cage and put in the back of our pickup, along with supplies, groceries, a canoe, and a fold-up kayak, clothes, and kitchen gear. Behind the truck was our new boat on a trailer. Two kids rode with Dad, and everyone else, including Ralph, rode with Mom in the station wagon. It all seemed so big to me, all that stuff and all that honking. It was exciting. But riding in the car with Mom, I would watch the boat trailer, convinced that the hitch might fail and let the boat fall off. When I was inside the truck, I was no less concerned. It, it was a used Dodge pickup that must have been 10 years old. It had a large V8 engine, powerful enough to tow the boat over mountains, but the brakes were a little soft and the steering challenging. Originally, it had power steering, but the fluid used in the steering system had leaked out years before. It was still possible to steer, but there were several inches of play in the wheel. And Dad would steer it by moving it back and forth constantly, looking for the place where it would catch the wheels. The few times I drove that truck, I, I didn't feel like I had any control. It was more like one of those carnival games where you crank a handle to make a small crane inside a glass box pick up a prize. There's plenty of control when it comes to speed. Direction? Less so. Dad was really the only person who could drive it. He liked the way the old truck drove as much as he loved the challenging switchbacks of a mountain pass. Probably the only thing that would have made it more to his liking might be a blizzard, but as far as I can remember, we never drove through that pass in a snowstorm. Going up a hill in a jagged valley between two dark stone peaks, the engine suddenly stopped. We pulled over to a narrow shoulder on the road and, and gently came to a stop. My father tried to restart the engine, but there was no response and no battery power whatsoever. None of us knew anything about repairing engines, but we got out of the truck and popped the hood. I think that in some ways men, especially men stopped in mountain passes, are required to do that. Lift up the hood and look at the engine as if they know what's wrong and what can be done about it. Boys too. Now, one can always tell that's going on by looking at the bobbing heads of the men. Yep, that looks broken to me. It's been a while since I've seen something like that. Someone might then point at the windshield washer fluid to say... There's your problem right there, not enough fluid. The fact that my brother and I had to stand on tiptoe to see the engine didn't really matter. To all who might see us, we were three knowledgeable guys consulting on our engine trouble. But we weren't very convincing. The road was empty of traffic. But in a few minutes, a guy in another pickup truck pulled up, got out, and asked us if we needed any help. He went up to the engine. He looked at it. Then he pulled out a 
long and frayed belt that belonged to our alternator. Now the alternator is the device that recharges the battery from the motion of the engine, but it needs a belt to do that. We were miles from the nearest gas station without an alternator belt and therefore no battery and no functioning engine. I have one of those in my truck, the guy suddenly said. He then went and got a brand new belt out of the back and he then installed it. Of course, our battery was dead, but he had the jumper cables ready and he gave us a jump off of his truck. My dad offered to pay him for all the help, but the guy would only accept, after some arguing, the cost of a new belt. And before we got back in the truck, someone looked up at the mountain peaks on either side, and there, on the rocks, were several doll sheep making their way to the next bit of scrub brush. They were unreal, jumping and running on, and almost vertical cliff face, completely comfortable in the most impossible place. We didn't see them while we were driving, of course, nor while we were looking at the broken engine, but they were there, noticing us, and wondering what we were doing down below. I never wanted to take my dad's luck for granted, but it never, never failed us. The mountain pass usually took about an hour to get through. By the time we got to the other side, we had been on the road for two hours and had at least one more to go. There wasn't an Archie's on this route, but after the pass, there was a little diner at the base of the mountains. It was called Gunsight Mountain Lodge. They probably had a couple of cabins in the back, but all I remember is the diner, the burgers, and the pinball machine. When I stood in the parking lot and looked back at the mountains, I could see where they got the name. At the top of the mountain was a rectangular gap that looked precisely like the notch used for aiming a gun. All my brother and I wanted to do was play the pinball machine, and we shamelessly begged for quarters. Now, he had a real knack for it and wasn't afraid to tempt the tilt shutdown device by bumping the corners to move the ball where he wanted. Later... Video games started to show up, and they were fun, but nowhere near as exciting as that old pinball machine made in Chicago and situated at the base of Gunsight Mountain. An hour or so later, we got to the boat landing at Lake Louise. Now, everyone probably was ready to call it a day at that point, but there was still more to come. First, my father had to back the boat trailer into the water, a very difficult thing to do. Then after quite a few tries and retries, it was in the water and tied to the dock. The geese were honking, and Ralph was barking with everything he had, somehow trying to top them or at least match them. Now, growing up, other adults would often comment on what well-behaved children we were. We tried our best, but I, I wonder if we appeared quieter and more reserved than we were because of the chaos all around us. I used to get mad at the geese for being so loud, but, but maybe they made us look good. We packed all our gear around the big cage of geese in the boat, then fit ourselves in the spaces still left. We untied, the engine started, and we took off across the lake towards the entrance to Lake Susitna. I imagine that old-timers watched us take off and shook their heads. How will they ever manage? We wondered that too. While the geese, well, they just wanted us to stop moving. 
It was a wonderful boat for us, not comfortable, but quick, powerful, and able to carry a lot of stuff safely. Lake Louise, don't mistake, by the way, this lake for the placid Lake Louise in Canada, was big, challenging, with intense winds causing six-foot or larger breakers right at the spot where the channel to Lake Susitna starts. The lake was gentle to us that first time, and as we came up to the channel, a zigzagging, marshy river that spanned about a city block in length, my father throttled down the motor. We bobbed a bit in the waves as he slowly approached, and then the propeller got stuck in the sandy lake bottom. Going forward and back, we somehow managed to get unstuck before we tried again. Now this time, my brother and I were part of the effort. My brother lay down in the front of the boat with his head over the side so he could look down into the water. He directed my father to the deeper parts of the channel while I was in the back perched over the outboard with my hands on the handle at the back. When it became too shallow, I would pull back and pivot the propeller up to avoid getting stuck. Now at full speed, it would have been impossible, but poking along slowly, it was just doable. There was a point when my father said, this is impossible. How do people do this? I agreed with him. It was taking forever. And I was pretty sure that the sand below us changed all the time. So even if we learned the right way to do it, it would probably change the next time. But we got through. Like Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn in The African Queen, we made it through. The fresh waves started coming at us and dad ran the throttle down and we pounded through. Later, the locals taught us the way through. Instead of going slow, the secret was to go at full speed. Now, when a boat goes quickly, it rises in the water and therefore requires much less room underneath it. The first time we did it, it was terrifying. We would hit something somewhere. We would likely crash. We would get stuck here in a storm, but we never did. Instead, we smoothly passed through every time, just like a local. But I missed being the point guy on the motor. I continued to sit in the back, watching the engine to make sure everything was okay. I worried a lot, but really I had no idea what I would do if something went wrong. I guess I wanted the job so badly that I was willing to pretend that I had something to contribute. Lake Susitna started angry, but always calmed down quickly. It was a longer lake than Louise, so logically there was so much more room for waves to develop. They could get bad in a storm, of course, but it was mostly mild. The channel between Lake Susitna and Lake Tyone was barely a channel. It was just a mild narrowing of the lake with plenty of room for anyone to get through. Tyone meandered back and forth like a broad river and was almost always calm. Once we got past the Lake Louise channel, no more heroics were required. By the time we got to our new place in the bush, we had traveled almost 200 miles. The cabins could be seen from a mile away. First, the boathouse was visible, perched on top of the water. The roof was flat and it had railings so it could be used like a deck. The other buildings then came into view, including the main cabin an old machine shop at the water's edge, small sleeping cabins, a couple of sheds, and an ice house. Everything looked not quite level, and except for the main cabin, haphazardly placed. But they were there. They were real. 
and soon we would all eat and go to bed. We pulled up to the dock, released the geese, and Ralph made a preliminary surveillance for squirrels. And together, we moved our food and supplies up the hill to the main cabin. After a quick meal, we unpacked sleeping bags and found our beds. The girls slept in what we called the honeymoon cottage, a little cabin with nice curtains and a front porch with a spectacular view of the bay. My brother and I went to the boys' bunkhouse. There's no other way to describe it. It was a bunkhouse with eight or nine bunk beds arranged against the walls. And at the end of the building, one bunk was underneath the lone window that looked out on the water. That's the bed we took. Just like in our bunk bed years in Philadelphia, I took the top and my brother the bottom. It was calm and unreal in the solstice light of late evening. The silence was so intense that it seemed noisy. Unlike any place we had ever seen before or since, it became our summer home for years to come. Early June, we would pack up people, geese, and supplies and go into the bush. Then late August came and we went back to town as school started. Dad then brought us groceries when he came out on Fridays. Then he headed back on Sundays unless there was a holiday or some time he could take off. It looked like arrangements with some families in the Northeast where the family lives somewhere like Martha's Vineyard in the summers and the breadwinner commutes from New York on the weekends. But unlike the Northeast, there weren't any other families around and Dad's journey was probably more challenging. We would wonder, and even asked out loud, why? Why did we have to have a cabin so far away and so difficult to reach? Wouldn't it have been so much nicer to have a cottage in the Matanuska Valley that is easy to get to without channel crossings and mountain passes? It probably would have been nicer, easier, safer. But that endless summer solstice sky, the profound isolation, the mystery of the abandoned fishing village, the sound of wolves howling over the hills at night, and the perfect reflection of the scrub pines in the water, that can only be found in places that don't have arches on the route. We discovered a lake was over a hill next to our lake. It was favored as a nesting area for a large group of wild swans. They would come over to our lake periodically, perhaps to find more fish. They were large, often with six-foot wingspans, and as white as a fairy tale swan. One day, when we started home for Anchorage, our boat just got up to speed when a swan next to us started to take off on a parallel course. He matched our speed. It looked like it was going in slow motion as it lifted and pushed its wings. Slowly, it rose, gradually, out of the water. Then we could see its feet as they ran on the surface of the water. Then, with more speed, it rose higher and higher until it was over our heads. It soared up into the sky, caught the wind, and then updrafts and then stopped flapping its wings. Like a sailboat in the sky, it became still 
but impossibly fast. That's why we were there. <laughs> 